So we are walking through Second Peter, walking through verse by verse, and, and this is week three, and we're going to enter this section here uh, in Second Peter that is some really heavy, weighty content here that we're going to unpack this morning. And I just have been thinking and praying this week as I've studied and, and written this message, and I pray that, that God would use it to speak to all of our hearts, that we would fall more in love with God and with his word more and more as a result of this message. Would you pray with me before we jump in? Father, we come before you this morning, and God, we just thank you for the privilege of gathering together and worshiping you. And God, I just pray, Lord, that that you would speak to your people. I pray that you would help me to get out of the way, help me to not be seen and heard, but Lord, help, help our hearts to hear from you today. God, I pray that you would speak to each one of us through your word, and that you would challenge us and convict us and change us so that we can be more like Christ. And God, I pray today that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we do live in dark times in our world, do we not? Some people would argue that it's been dark for a long time. And I would argue that it has been since Genesis 3, since the fall of humanity, since the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, we can recognize that, that it's been dark since the fall. And societies go different directions and take different routes. And in and, and, and our country, if you'd have went back 50, 60 years, years ago, 100 years ago for sure, the, the, the face of the country, the, 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 the moral trajectory of the country looked a little different than it does right now. The, the speed in which we are embracing darkness in our world seems to be increasing by the second. We live in dark times. We live in dark times. And, and you just look at the news. You look at abductions and murders. You look at, you look at children being taken advantage of by parents or by uh, uh, strangers or wherever, family members. You, just, you, you see the pain. You see sexual sin. You see darkness all around. You see the lingering COVID-19 pandemic. You see the people that have been sick, but you also see the politicians that are using this pandemic for their own ends and for their own agendas. You see darkness everywhere, all around us. And so it's important that in the middle of darkness that we have light. What did you do whenever the light went out after Ida? If you didn't have a whole house generator to kick on, what did you do? You went to look for a a flashlight. You went to look for a candle. You went to look for light. When the light goes out, you reach, when the dark, when the light goes out, you reach for light. You reach for a source of light. You reach for something that can help you to stumble through the darkness. I think so often, as Christians, we can find ourselves stumbling through the darkness in the middle of this world, and we're looking, we're looking for light, and that should not be ever the case for us as Christians, because we know where the light is found. We know where the truth is found, but often we find ourselves stumbling in the darkness. Whenever right in front of us, right next to us, next to our bed, our bed stand, our nightstand, is the light is the revelation that is the light of the world, right? It's right next to us. It's all the light that we need. It's Christ, His Spirit that lives on the inside of us is the light that we need. I don't believe it's... I don't believe when you read the end times and you read and you study in Daniel and in Revelation, I don't believe it's going to get better. I believe it's going to get increasingly more difficult to live a Christian life in our culture. It's going to become increasingly difficult. And so it's even more imperative... 
in our lives, in our generation, that we hold on to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we hold on to the foundation of Scripture, that we do not let it go, that it it is a lamp into our feet and a, a light into our path. And this is the context of this section that Peter is speaking as we're going to continue in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Don't forget, I want us to not forget the context of who Peter is writing to. If you remember, we went through 1 Peter. At the beginning of the letter of 1 Peter, he says that he is addressing those dispersed Christians that had been dispersed all over the, the Roman Empire because of persecution. They were dispersed in 10 different regions and areas all over the Roman Empire, but they were dispersed. They had to separate. They had to flee their homes and their families, their, their livelihoods. They had to flee because of persecution in the middle of their life and in their world. And so don't forget this context. Peter is writing them this letter. He's reminding them, you have a light. You have a truth. You have a foundation that you can hold on to. And so it's so important that we understand this. Peter shifts his focus now, his exhortations towards remembrance. He doesn't want persecuted and troubled believers to forget the power they possess in Christ and in the scriptures. He doesn't want them to forget. He doesn't want them to forget the light they have to navigate the dark paths they're walking in. And we need that same exhortation that we would not forget. We would not forget all that we have. All that we possess in Christ. All that we possess in his holy word. We have so much to be thankful for. So let's look at this text. This text is powerful. It's a lot of things to bring out. I'm not going to be able to bring out every single detail within this text. But we're going to do our best to unpack it. Let's look at 2 Peter 1, verses 16 through 21. Peter is reminding, encouraging, exiled, persecuted believers. He says this. For we did not... Follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. As they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So what do we see in this section that the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Peter, wants to remind us of. As we're living in dark times, as we're living in difficult times, as Christians, when biblical worldviews are under attack, what do we need to be reminded of when we're living during these times? I think right from this text, we see three things that are so powerful for us to think about. And the first one is this, is that our hope in Christ is not based upon myths. It's not based upon myths. Our hope in Christ is not based upon myths. Peter, the apostle, is writing this. Peter was a disciple that followed Christ. He was an eyewitness of the life of Christ, but the death of Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ. Our hope in Christ is not based upon myths. Notice what he says there in the text. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. 
when we'd made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now think about the pressure that his hearers and the readers of this letter would be under, as we talked about in the introduction. Think about the pressure they would be under to just cave in and say, well, Certainly, this is just a myth. These are just myths. You know, this is just made up. You know, one, one group of people, they, they, they think that they saw the resurrected Christ. They, they think that they saw him alive. And then they got passed on to another person, to another person. You know the telephone game, right? Right, you set a group of people in line. And you tell one person one thing and it gets to, the, to number 20. And, and what in the world was said to start with? Right? Certainly, it's just a myth. And Peter is addressing this right up front. In his exhortation, he says, listen, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. These are not myths about Christ. We saw him in his power and we saw him in his majesty. We saw him in his life and we saw him in his majesty and his glory. We were eyewitnesses. Have you ever been an eyewitness to something? And you you declared what you saw? Were you ever accused of saying that that was a myth? If you were an eyewitness, a myth, what, what is a myth? a myth? A myth is a legend or a tall tale. That's what a myth is. It's a legend. It's a tall tale. You guys ever studied Greek mythology when you were in high school or in college? Listen to some pagan Greek mythology. Prometheus is said of him, gave fire as a gift to mankind. Zeus became ze- jealous And had Prometheus chained to a rock in the Adriatic Sea and had vultures peck out his liver. That's a myth, right? It's a tall tale. It's not verifiable. We can never verify that Prometheus ever lived and gave fire to mankind, that Zeus became jealous and pecked out his liver. Pandora, you know Pandora, Pandora's box. Oh, Pandora was a woman. She opened up her vessel and all the evils of the world jumped out. Right? This is Greek mythology. How about some modern day myths? You ever looked at the National Enquirer? You ever read the covers of the National Enquirer? Listen to some modern day myths. Hillary Clinton adopts alien baby. It's a real, you can look that up. That was a real cover on the National Enquirer. Hillary Clinton, Clinton adopts an alien baby. Man's 174 mile per hour sneeze blows his wife's hair off. How about that one? Snake with human head found in Arkansas. Isn't that interesting? Those are myths. Those are tall tales. They're not verifiable. Peter is saying, look, look, this is not a myth. This is not a tall tale. This is not a legend. We were eyewitnesses to his power and eyewitnesses to his majesty. But myths or tall tales are unverifiable. They cannot be proven. Peter is saying to those who would be charging him with passing on legends concerning Christ and to those who were believers in Christ, listen, we were eyewitnesses. And he's referencing something that he was specifically an eyewitness to. He's referencing the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, we heard the voice from heaven. We saw the transfigured Christ. This is Matthew 17, 1 through 2. It says this, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And then it says that a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. 
Peter, James, and John, the one writing, Peter, the one writing this in Second Peter, he says, he says, or, or in the account in the Gospels, it says that Peter, James, and John looked at, looked at each other and looked at Jesus and said, it is good that we are here. And, he, and Moses and Elijah was there. And so, so, so Peter says, we need to make three tabernacles, three tents to worship and to honor all three of you. It's good that we are here. They were eyewitnesses to the glory, eyewitnesses to, to his majesty. And they were eyewitnesses and they heard the voice of God speak and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's saying to these persecuted Christians, listen, you're going to be tempted to give up your faith. You're going to be tempted to say that, yeah, it was just a myth. It was just a myth. These guys are making it up. It can't really be true. And you're going to be tempted to give in in the cave and to say, you know what? It can't be true. No one can rise from the dead. This is just a myth or a legend. I want to share something with you. These are, these are from Tim Keller. And if you ever read anything from Tim Keller, he's a brilliant pastor, scholar. And he gives four reasons why the New Testament could not be myths. Four reasons why the New Testament could not be myths. Let's walk through these real quickly. The first one would be this. The timing of the writing of the New Testament manuscripts is too early for them to be a legend or to be a myth. Most New Testament books were written while the apostles or those who knew the apostles were still alive. The majority of the New Testament manuscripts were written while the apostles who were the eyewitnesses, as Peter was an eyewitness, or while those who knew the apostles were alive. So think about it practically. If you were an eyewitness to the life of Christ and you saw the miracles that he did, you saw the crucifixion, you saw the resurrection, and somebody writes an account and they come up to you and, they, and the account has error in it, it's not accurate, it's not portraying what you saw, you would be able to say, wait a minute, this is not true, this is not accurate. The manuscripts, most of the New Testament manuscripts were, were written 30 years or less, one of them 20 years After the death of Jesus Christ, a legend or a lie would not have made it past those who were actually eyewitnesses. Again, the manuscripts are too early for them to be a legend. It would have to have been a hundred years, a hundred plus more years to pass by for legends to to develop. But this is within 20 or 30 years of the the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ that, that people begin to write. The apostles begin to write. The writers of the New Testament begin to write their accounts of the life of Christ and of the ministry, what they were taught, what they saw, what they were taught. And so it, they could not be legends. Another interesting thing to note is that the earliest Christians in history were known to have celebrated communion. That is interesting. The, the earliest of Christians were known to have celebrated the death of Christ. The fact, the fact that, that he, he died and he rose again, they celebrated communion, the earliest of Christians. These, this was not just a legend that was passed on from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. It's within 20 to 30 years of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ that people began to write down their eyewitness accounts. Another thing about the writings was this. Uh, Peter Williams, a professor at Cambridge, He says this, you can tell that these writings are early within the time period by how they spell the names in the New Testament manuscripts. You know, so like we write a certain way today, you know, in our writings, uh, in in our country, in our era. 
But then in certain time periods of history, the way that words were used and, and certain types of names and words were used are different than what we use now. And so the, the, the scholars like Peter Williams, a professor at Cambridge, when they study language and the uses of words, they can look at the words that were used in, the, in those manuscripts and can date them to the time, that, that, that the period of when Christ lived and he died and he resurrected. It's the first reason. The timing of the writing is too early for them to be a legend. Second reason, the content is far too counterproductive to be a legend. If you read the Gospels in particular, you look at the Gospels, they, they don't leave out all the negative things about their lives. They don't leave out all the things that, like if you're writing an account of your life with Christ, and, you're, and you know people are going to read this, and, and you're writing it, you're not going to talk about yourself in a negative light, would you? But you see it over and over and over again, in particular in the Gospels. You see negative accounts about the, the, the apostles. The apostles were a bunch of buffoons, were they not? They were strung along. God, Jesus just was patient with them over and over again. But think about Peter. Just one, one example here. Matthew 16. Jesus tells Peter, I'm going to go die. I'm going to be crucified. Peter says, no way. Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. Why would you put that in there if it actually did not happen? It's counterproductive, right? It's the real life of what actually happened. Peter was called Satan by the Lord Jesus Christ. Or what about this one? The Gospels record... That when Jesus was raised from the dead, that the first people to attest to his resurrection were women. Were women. Now, why does that matter? It matters because during that time, women, the testimony of women, were not allowed, were not uh, admissible in court. So, like, if you had a case that you brought before a court during those times, and you, and you said, I'm going to bring a woman in to vouch for me, they wouldn't have even allowed her testimony. So when the gospel writers write about their eyewitness account of the resurrection of Christ, they choose to say it was women that first went to the tomb to see and attest to the resurrected Christ. And it was the women who went and found the disciples and said, Jesus is raised. It's counterproductive. They were were recounting what actually happened. A third reason. A third reason why the New Testament is not myths, is this, is that the literary form of the gospel is too detailed to be a legend. The literary form of the gospel is too detailed to be a legend. Think about all the different random details you find in the gospels. Just random details that pop up. No moral implication, just random details. Here's, here's one, Mark four thirty six. It says this, and Jesus, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats and other boats were with him. And other boats were with him. Have you ever preached a sermon? Ever heard a sermon preached from, from Mark four thirty six? And other boats were with him. Why would you put in there? And other boat boats were with him. It's a detail. It's an eyewitness account. Somebody who wrote this, Mark, who wrote this, was an eyewitness account, and he noted that there were some boats, but then there were other boats that were with him. It's just these random details, and you see it throughout the Gospels that, that show you that these are eyewitness accounts. Here's another one that I think is the pinnacle of all random details in the Gospels. This is Mark 14, 51 through 52. This is after Jesus' arrest 
He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. There's chaos. There's drama. Listen to this. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Anybody ever heard a message about the young man that ran away naked? Maybe you have. I don't know. But you know what that sounds like? That sounds like that somebody, uh, they, 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 they saw that. Can you imagine you were in a situation in your life? And, and maybe right now during church and somebody takes off their clothes and runs out of here naked. What are you going to do when you go home and you write about that account? You're going to say, oh, my goodness, Pastor Ben was preaching and so and so ran out naked. That's how it reads. Jesus was arrested. He was put in chains. He was carried away. And Mark says, oh, by the way, there was this guy that was following him. All he had was a, like a linen cloth around him and he ran away Naked. It reads like an eyewitness account. Here's a fourth reason why the New Testament message cannot be myths. The message itself was too costly to be a myth or a legend. It was too costly to be a myth or a legend. The apostles did not gain anything earthly by preaching this message of the resurrected Christ. They didn't gain anything earthly other than persecution and death. Hear me. The early up the apostles who were, as Peter says, I was eyewitnesses to his power. He walked in in his life. I was eyewitnesses on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he's pointing to these early Christians that he's writing to in Second Peter. He's saying we were eyewitnesses and they gained nothing earthly other than persecution and death. Because of their account. All of them. Peter, history tells us, was burned upside down. Because of his belief in the resurrected Christ. He said, I am not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. And they, they flipped him up, upside down. Here's, here's another thought. James, the half-brother of Jesus. You remember in the Gospels, it says that not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his family believed in Christ. James became a convert. And, it, and, and Josephus writes... An early historian during these times writes that James, a half-brother of Jesus, was stoned for his belief in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. Are you sitting next to your brother right now? Eliana, you sit next to your brother right there? What would it take for you to be stoned for a belief in your brother as the resurrected Lord? He would have to have raised from the dead. You don't die for that. You put your brother in an insane asylum. If he wasn't truly resurrected, this is such a powerful reason that the, the, the New Testament, especially the Gospels, they are not myths. They're not legends. They're eyewitness accounts. The message itself was too costly to be a legend. Peter is saying to Christ followers, walking through dark times, he said, hey, look, 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 guys, listen, listen, we were eyewitnesses. Our hope is not based upon myths. Your hope you're persevering in this persecution. You're persevering during this, during this dark time. And I want to remind you that we were eyewitnesses. We saw it. And so-and-so saw it. And so-and-so saw it. And this person saw it. And we, we can vouch for this reality. We were eyewitnesses. Our hope is not based upon this. Do you believe that today? The second reality that we see within this text that Peter shifts and begins to focus on is secondly, the scriptures are a more sure word. So he begins to say, he starts out by saying, hey, we were eyewitnesses. We beheld his power and his glory and his majesty. We saw him on the mountain of transfiguration where he, he, he was shining in light and glory. 
And then he shifts. And he does something that, that we would not do. He shifts the focus from his personal experience to the surety of the scriptures. The scriptures are a more sure word. Look at 2 Peter 2.19. It says this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Peter now points the believer to the most sure revelation we have as believers. He shifts here. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. The Old King James, I want to read this to you. The Old King James gives us the closest translation to the original language of this phrase, more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed. The Old King James puts it like this. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light shining in a dark place. So the original language lends itself to this translation that the King James Version gives, which is this phrase, a more sure word. More sure. Peter is saying here, yes, we are eyewitnesses. We're not making this up. It can be verified by our personal experience. But, but we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Who would ever say that? We wouldn't say that. If you saw the transfigured Christ on the mountain, or you were eyewitness to his resurrection, you would never divert people's attention away from that personal experience. You would say, believe in me because I saw it. We would never point to something else. Would we? I don't think we would. That's not what we do. Personal experience for us is everything. If I can see it, if I can taste it, if I can touch it, then it is real. Peter, Peter shifts the focus and he says, yes, we were eyewitnesses. Yes, we saw it. We saw his power and his glory, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. Peter is acknowledging here that the believer needs something more reliable than just personal experience. Because if personal experience is the final test of truth, then truth can never be objectively known. If personal experience is the final test of truth, then that means you have your own truth and 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 so on and so forth. And every one of us, we have our own version of the truth. If, there, if that is the standard for truth, follow me, then there can never be an objectively known standard for truth. This is what separates Christianity from all other, all other world religions. We say we have an objective standard for truth. We don't say, well, we have an objective standard for truth, but then it's based upon your personal experience and your personal experience and so on. Peter is shifting the focus. It's kind of like this. You guys may have seen books like this. I'm going to give you some titles of some books. Maybe you've even read these books. But what's interesting about these books that I'm going to talk to you about is that these books talk about God, they talk about heaven, and they all contradict themselves. They talk about God, they talk about heaven, and they all contradict themselves. Here's, here's one book, 90 Minutes in Heaven. Or what about a, another book, Heaven is for Real? Or here's another one, Heaven and Unexpected Journey. Or Heaven, Close Encounters of the God Kind. Or go on YouTube, countless numbers of people on YouTube who will say, God said this, God gave me this vision, God showed me this revelation, and you get contradictions all over the map with different people. Different ideas. Do we have something more sure than that? Do we have something that's more reliable than that? This is what Peter is saying. He's saying, look, I had this great revelation. Yes, we are eyewitnesses and your faith is not just based on a myth. Jesus really lived. We saw him. He really died. We saw it. 
He really was risen. We saw it. But you have something even more sure than that. You have the prophecy of Scripture, which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. Every one of these books and all, everyone else that, that says that they have this new, new revelation from God, they're wanting you to place your hope in their ability to hear from God. Whenever sitting right in front of us, we have the most sure word of prophecy that we could ever need or ever want, like a lamp shining in a dark place. You know, the, the Apostle Paul was like the Apostle Peter. He did the same thing. He diverted people's away from saying, hey, it's, don't just trust in my experience, trust in the Scriptures, trust in what God's Word says. Look what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12. He says, I, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, he's speaking of himself, was called up into to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, he has a vision of the, of the third heaven. And I know that this man was called up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told. Went, saw a vision of heaven, but he didn't write a book about it. Isn't that interesting? Didn't write a book about it. He heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me in my life and hears of me in my message. Paul was pointing away. Hey, I had a vision in the third heaven, but I'm not even going to write about it. Because I, I don't want you to put your trust in me because I told you I saw heaven. You guys follow that? It's powerful. It's powerful. It's different. Listen, that is different than what you will see on the internet today. Everyone wants to tell you about their revelation from God. And if, you, if people try to tell you, I'm going to tell you about my revelation from God, and they don't tell you, open up to chapter, book, chapter, verse. What's, how do you X out on the iPhone now? You used to have a home button. You've got to slide up now. Slide up. Slide up. But whenever you get somebody that says, I want to tell you about my revelation from God, turn to Lamentations chapter 3, verse 29. I'm going to talk to you about my revelation from God because it's a revelation we all received. It's not based upon my opinion, not based upon any other external circumstance of my life. It's an objective standard. Peter diverted, Paul diverted, and we should divert too. Paul says, judge me by my life, my character, and by the gospel. This is the heart of what the Holy Spirit is saying through Peter. This is what he's saying. He's saying, look to the scriptures. Look to the scriptures. Now, what scriptures is Peter saying to these believers that are reading this in the first church? He's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying, this is so good. Listen, follow me, follow me. I know this is academic in the beginning, and I'm about to get academic here in a second, but just listen. This is so important to think about. Peter is telling them, yes, I had this personal experience. I saw the power of Christ in his life. I saw his majesty on the mountain. I heard the Father's voice from heaven. But we have a more sure word of prophecy that you do well to pay attention to as to a light shining in a dark place. He's pointing them back to the scriptures. But what scriptures? Not the New Testament. He's pointing back to the Old Testament. Well, what was in the Old Testament? What was in the Old Testament? Prophecies concerning Christ. 
He says, look, I'm telling you, I had this experience. It's true. But look back to the Old Testament. Look back to the prophecies concerning Christ. Christ fulfilled every single one of them. That is a more sure word of prophecy than what I've seen or even what I've heard. That's powerful. You know that Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies, direct fulfillment, over 300 prophecies about his life, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Over 300 of them. Some scholars say between four to, four to 500 prophecies. If you can expand them out to different types of prophecies. But conservative, con- conservatively, over 300 direct prophecies about the life of the birth of the Messiah, the life of the Messiah, the death and the, crucif- and the resurrection. Mathematicians and scientists studied, what are the odds that one man could fulfill eight, just eight of those same prophecies. What are the odds of that actually taking place? Jesus fulfilled 300 plus when you read through the prophets in the Old Testament. What are the odds that, what would the odds be if one man fulfilled just eight? This is what the odds would be. The odds were put at one in 10 to the 17th power. One in 10 to the 17th power. What does that mean? That's one, that, 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 that's 10 with, that's one with 17 zeros after it. That's the odds. One in 10 to the 17th power. That's, that's just a huge number. You can't even comprehend that number, right? Well, practically speaking, what would that, those odds look like? Those same mathematicians says, well, here's what those odds would actually look like. Practically. This is the odds that it would take for one man to fulfill only eight of the Old Testament prophecies. Cover the state of Texas in silver dollars. Cover the entire state. Have you driven across the state of Texas? I have. I've driven from Orange, Texas, all the way to California. I've ridden. I was a kid. So I've ridden across the whole state of Texas. Cover the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, three feet deep. Okay? Take one of those silver dollars and put an X on it. Bury that silver dollar in some random place under the three feet of silver dollars. And then I pick somebody randomly. I say, Mr. Leverance, come here. Not now, literally, but come here and, and, and you go find. I'm going to blindfold you. And you go in one try, grab the silver dollar with the X. That's the odds of one man fulfilling eight prophecies. The fact that he would get it in the first try. Isn't that profound? Jesus fulfilled 300 prophecies. Here's one of the most profound. This prophecy about Christ was written 700 years before his birth. Not not, not just before his death, but before his birth. 700 years. The prophet Isaiah wrote this. Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Verse 9 And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. It's a prophecy. You can obviously see the prophecy about how he was crucified. He opened not his mouth. Isaiah 53, it goes on. 
to the things that they did. They cast lots for his clothes. We see that in the gospel. But this is one of the most powerful prophecies. How many of you have any control over where they're going to bury your body when you die? Are they going to bury you or are they going to cremate you? What, what do you think is going to happen? What do you want to happen? You know you have no control over that. As much as you believe your loved ones are going to do what you wish, they could change their mind. And they could say, $10,000 versus $1,200. We're going to burn that body. I'm not going to talk about, you know, what my belief is on that. You just figure that out on your own. But you have no control over what happens with your body when you're dead. The prophecy in Isaiah 53, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, says that he would have a grave with a rich man. Mark 15, the rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that, that he should have already died and he summoned the centurion and he asked him whether, whether he was already dead. And, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph, who was a rich man, a very respected member of the council. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. A rich man's tomb. It's powerful. Fulfillment of the prophecy. 700 years before his birth. That's one prophecy. Peter is saying to first century persecuted believers. He's saying keep the faith. Not based upon the fact that I'm telling you I saw Christ in his glory. Keep the faith because look at the scriptures. Look at all the prophecies from the prophets in the Old Testament and look at how Christ fulfilled every single one of them. You have a more sure word of prophecy. Keep the faith. Stay encouraged. Not because of the evidence of my own experience. Look to the Scriptures. There must be a singular objective standard for revelation or supposed revelation from God is subjected to human opinion and error. There must be a singular objective standard for revelation or all other supposed revelations cannot be trusted. It must be. And scripture is that singular standard of revelation that we do well. Thirdly, we do well to heed to. Third point here today. The scriptures are like a lamp in a dark place. We do well to heed to that. For us with a completed copy of scripture... How often do we set aside that power that is revealed right in front of us? And we set it aside for supposed extra-biblical revelation. Today, in the modern church age, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit and his inspired words that he gave the Apostle Peter, that we have a more sure word, and that these inspired words, these scriptures, are like a lamp in a dark place. Look back at the text, 2 Peter 1.19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, or as the King James calls it, a more sure word of prophecy. To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter says here, we do well to pay attention to scripture. Listen to the word. Pay careful attention. I love Psalms 119. Psalms 119 is a long chapter in the book of Psalms. I love what Psalms 119 says about the word of God. The psalmist says this, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
through your precepts. This is speaking of the word of God. Through your laws, through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. What was Peter talking about? The word being a lamp? He says, your word, the psalmist says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How are we going to navigate these times that we're living in? Are we, going to base, are we going to navigate these dark times based upon somebody's opinions or ideas or supposed revelation? Are we going to navigate these dark times based upon the singular, most, most, most sure revelation we can have, which is the written word of God? How are we going to navigate these times? Have you ever been in a room before? You're in a room before and there's several people that are in there. Let's just say five or six people are in the room. And they're trying to figure out what went wrong and how to fix it. You ever been in that situation? You're in a room with people, maybe a part of your business. You're in a staff meeting. Maybe you're in a room with your family, right? You're trying to figure out what went wrong, what went wrong and how to fix it. And you're given your idea and and the, the person next to you is given their idea and everyone's given their opinion, their idea, their opinion, their idea and you're not making heads or tails about what direction to go. How to, what went wrong? And how do I fix it? And everyone's given their opinions. But then all of a sudden, the one in charge shows up. If it's in your home, dad shows up. Or maybe it's mom. Mom's in charge. Mom shows up. And everyone gets quiet. Or maybe it's on on your job. The staff's trying to figure out what, what went wrong and how do we fix it. And the boss walks in the room. What do you do? Because you know that the one in charge is going to speak. You know the one in charge is going to speak. And when they speak, you hush up and you listen. You're not listening to what Joe Blow, your co-worker, says or what your sister says or what your brother says. You're listening to one that's in charge because he knows what went wrong and he knows how to fix it. We have lots of voices today. And you know what all these voices are trying to do? Trying to figure out what went wrong and how do we fix it. What went wrong? What's wrong with this world? What is wrong with this world? How do we fix it? All these voices talking. Well, really, man's basically good. Man's basically good. Not really, not really not that bad. And here's how we fix it. If we could just, we could just ramp up human goodness and we'll, 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 we'll fix this world. All these talking heads saying, figuring out this is what went wrong and here's how we are to fix it. The question for us today is, is when will we stop speculating And listen to the one who is in charge and listen to what he has already spoken. When are we going to stop and actually listen? It's here. He's written. Why is there sin in the world? The Bible tells us why there's sin. Why is there brokenness? Why are there natural disasters? Why do these things happen? Because the world is broken. God gives us the truth of his word to be a lamp into our feet and a a light into our path. When are we going to stop listening to speculation? And when are we going to listen to the boss? When are we going to listen to the one that is in charge? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this. This takes it from the Old Testament. Peter's talking to those first century readers. And this takes it to the New Testament. All means all, right? All scripture, old and new, is what? Breathed out by God. Do you have your Bibles with you right now? Do you have them? Bring them to church. Bring, bring your Bibles to church next Sunday. Bring them to church. Hold them. Feel it, right? These words 
are the very breathed out words of God. When God exhales, truth comes out. And he exhaled through the power of the Spirit. The Spirit inspired the biblical writers. They were carried along, as it says there in 2 Peter 1. They were carried along. And they wrote Scripture. These are the very breathed out words of God. And they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God, that you and I, may be complete and equipped for every good work. What is wrong and how to fix it? We're equipped for every good work. Work to address what's wrong and how to fix it. What's wrong? Sin. How to fix it? The gospel. What's wrong? Brokenness from sin. How to fix it? The gospel of Jesus Christ. I often think about this for myself, and I know it applies to all of us here today. Do we know what we have in our hands when we hold a copy of sacred scripture? Do we, do we grasp what we have access to? Do we, do we grasp it? You know, in China today, the Communist Party controls the expression of religion. And only certain approved versions of the Bible are allowed. For decades, decades and decades, people have been smuggling Bibles into China. It was against the law to have, it is, and so I would imagine some places against the law to still have a Bible in China. And people will smuggle, they'll carry backpacks in and they'll smuggle Bibles in. And people in China risked their life to gather together publicly outside of a state-ran religion of the Communist Party of China. But they gather in homes and, and they get Bibles that are smuggled in from all over the world. And they read these Bibles and, 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 and they, they, they have, a, I, I would imagine, a deeper understanding of what it means to have a copy of the Bible. And this is a video that went around about seven years ago. You, you probably have already seen it. Some of you have not. I want you to watch the video of, of a Chinese, Chinese Christians receiving their first copy of sacred scripture. Watch, watch this video. It's powerful. You know what I, I noticed about that video? I watched it several times. The joy, right? Suitcases open. You remember smuggling Bibles in? Suitcases open. The joy. They jump in. They grab it. They're so overjoyed. They smell it. They put it to their face. But did you notice the switch? It went from joy to reverence. They realized in that moment, I have the word of God. I have the word, the very breathed out words of God. The joy, then the awe and reverence. Do we really believe that this is the words of God. We would certainly approach it differently. 
And we would certainly not be chasing all kind of other people's revelations that they have that are outside of Scripture. We would go to the only true and reliable source of revelation if we really believe that God has spoken to us through his word. Psalm 119 says this in conclusion. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart. That I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for your truth today. Lord, may we be consumed. May, may, may we have joy. God, may you open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things out of your law. May we meditate on your precepts. May we fix our eyes on your ways. May we delight in your testimonies as in all riches. May we store up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. God, may we not wander from your commandments. And may with all of our hearts, may we seek you. God, I pray that today, Lord, that that we would know that our faith and our hope is not based upon myths. It's based upon real eyewitness accounts of men and women who saw and wrote their testimony of the risen Christ. But Lord, even, even in spite of all of those eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts, Lord, you point us in your word to your word as a more sure word of testimony. And I pray, God, that we would fall in love with your word, that we would base, use it as a basis for our entire life, that we would live it, that we would believe it, that we would live it, and that we would preach it wherever we go. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I love you.